Hey, it's Simon, and welcome to this Christmas edition of Turning the Tables. For this episode, I decided to rewind a new edition of my favourite episode with actor, comedian and singer Michael Crawford. I think you will agree this is a great way to finish the year with such an inspirational interview. It was an absolute privilege to talk to Michael and particularly poignant for me as Michael had helped me get through a chronic illness that he had suffered himself some years before. I also want to take this opportunity to thank you, my listeners, for your support. This podcast has no backers, no sponsorship and no advertising. It's through the generosity of my guests that help make this possible. So a huge thank you to them and to you for listening. It means a great deal. For my new listeners, you're in for a treat. Michael has had an extraordinary career in TV, the theatre and film, working alongside stars such as Gene Kelly. He he said, uh, what we're looking for is is an attractive idiot. Now, my wife, she's seen you. She (laughs) thinks you're attractive. And I think you're an idiot. He said, so I want you to go back to England and I want you to do a test for me. Barbara Streisand, Walter Matthau and Andrew Lloyd Webber. And he said, who who was it? So he said, it was Michael Crawford. Um, I do a part. No, no. I think we may have found our phantom. He has been described as one of our most outstanding all-round performers and entertainers. In these difficult times, I hope Michael's stories and reflections will bring a smile to your face and a warm glow to your heart. Happy Christmas. Now let's get into the interview. In front of the school, we had our our first performance in the the school hall. People were laughing at what you had to do and, and I wasn't being beaten after (laughs) they were laughing which was normally the case (laughs) and then we had a major performance at lambeth town hall in brixton which i think still stands there yes it does uh, even after my visit (laughs) and we did this performance before the school all the parents were there local dignitaries and the headmaster, who wasn't too keen on me, and the French master, who particularly wasn't keen because I couldn't concentrate and learn French fast enough for him. <laughs> so they they used to beat this this sweet boy, and they loved their roles. They really loved it. So I came out, and they're beating me and singing verse after verse, and they rip my shirt off, and I'm left uh, with, with no top on at all and, and all sooty body. And then I got these ragged shorts and they ripped those off and underwear. I've got some ragged underwear underneath, all black and sooty. So comes the opening night with the mayor, everybody there. They rip the shirt off and up the chimney, up you go. And the relish in their voices as they threw me around the stage. They pulled my trousers off and I hadn't put any underwear on and I had forgotten. Well, they pulled the curtain down. They cut the curtain so fast. People were whistling. I don't know if money was thrown, but but it was, no, no, no. It was horrific and they thought I'd done it on purpose. And that, I mean, I, I really, truly, truly hadn't, done it on purpose. I mean, it, it was horrifying. 
So they they gave me a they I got a beating for that, and the, put the pants on and the curtain went up and off we went still going and I'm still crying as it and I was literally crying. <laughs> So they, they thought it was one of the best performances they'd ever seen in Lambeth Town <laughs> I, I suppose the, the the sort of the energetic physicality of your characterizations really really came to bear with Frank Spencer. Well, yes, it had. Some mothers had been offered to Ronnie Barker and Norman Wisdom, and they'd both turned it down. And I, when I read it. I wanted him to be real. What I was reading was a funny character. I wanted him to be a real character. I wanted him to be clumsy in the way the awkwardness was inside him. It came from inside him through a fear of of, of life, but a love of life and a love of the people around him, but he couldn't express himself properly. So, I mean, the unbelievable thing is how he ever ended up marrying someone as lovely as Betty. Indeed. Because she was so kind. And 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 the minute Michelle Dutrice walked in for an audition, as soon as she walked through the door, I knew she was the girl. Yes. And we are still very, very good friends That's to this day. Lovely, uh, both it? our families are friends and I adore her. She's a wonderful lady and was a great girl to work with. So that um, there was a truth there. There was a, a, an affection between us as people and and that we then, we'd use in our dialogue, the writing, Raymond Allen, who wrote the, wrote the dialogue, and and some of the stories, other stories I wrote, and he hear what we were doing and would would tailor it to our to our relationship, so that it, when when he heard he was going to have a baby that and was so excited, there were there were tears in his eyes that he was so. I think there were tears in the audience's eyes actually. Well, they couldn't believe <laughs> yeah. that. So, but it was, was great that the public took to the truth of what was going on. And I think I learned that from watching, as a child, people like Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, Laurel and Hardy. I found a truth in those stories. I believe those fellows lived. I believe those two characters moved that piano down that hill and it (laughs) ran away accidentally and Stan Laurel was absolutely mortified and you felt for him and you joined in the drama of it. So there's a drama in comedy. But it's not cruel. It's it's you'll you'll see the villain hit them on the head, but it's with a with a plank which you know is just it's silliness. So there's a farcical thing about it as well, which was where I, I wanted to bring the physicality. Yes. And the physicality comes from being a boy. We all have a sense of fun when we're kids. Well, but we can get into trouble doing it roller skating down the road and thinking, oh, I might grab on the back of that bus and get pulled along, is not acceptable. <laughs> but when I wrote it into the script and had had and I was pulled along, then I got paid for it as well. 
it was it was bliss. <laughs> it was just bliss. But obviously, you, you know, you were very well known for doing your stunts, where I think many people probably wouldn't have wanted to take on those stunts. What drove you to really want to do those things? Well, well many of them were my ideas, so therefore it was... <laughs> you had it no was, choice. I know, I was a volunteer. Anything that could put, again, with the influence of those people I saw when I was a kid. Danny Kaye had a, a great influence on me when I saw him live at the London Palladium. So I suppose when I got serious about doing, I was, you actually arrive in the West End. You are so excited and so pleased, simple word, to be there that your energy levels are way, way high and and they have to be. Rehearsals are hard. You do long days and you absolutely dedicate yourself to putting this show on. It was a it was great physicality. Mm. Walking the wire, you were on you were on trapeze. You were on, on in practice. You were on trapeze. You were on trampolines, jumping up to, to heights. You were nonstop energy. That was really unlike anything anyone was seeing at that time. And so, when you got the reaction from an audience who stood at the end of every show. That energizes you mm. to come back the next night mm. and you want to be as good as you were the mm. night before mm. because they've never seen you. Mm. The new audience, you can't just sit mm. down now. You've got to do that and deliver every night. I've got a grin from ear to ear because they were such happy memories of four years we did. So I was going to ask, what, at what point did you start to see that physicality in your performance as really an essential part of the way you, you acted? Well, I I had the opportunity. I was doing a, a play on Broadway called Black Comedy by Peter Schaffer and working with Jeremy McEwen and Lynn Redgrave. It was seen by uh, a gentleman called Roger Edens. He'd been part of the musical theatre in, in Hollywood. So he came and saw it and reported to... Gene Kelly in Los Angeles. They were looking for a, a Cornelius Hackle for, for the film, the movie version of Hello, Dolly, starring Barbara Streisand and Walter Matthau. So they contacted my agent in London and they said, we'd like you to come over and meet uh, Mr. Kelly. And so I, I, I was flown over to... San Francisco, I met him. I had to fly to San Francisco because he was there for some reason or another. And I, I had this interview with him and I was so nervous. There was this great big coffee table and he's saying, now, listen, kid, he said, after, after 10 minutes conversation with me, he, he said, uh, what we're looking for is, is an attractive idiot. Now, my wife, she's seen you. She <laughs> thinks you're attractive. And I think you're an idiot. He said, so yes. I want you to go back to England. I want you to do a test for me. And I, I, so I came back to England. I got one of the dancers from West Side Story to teach me the basics of movement. And, of course, you know the energy that was within West Side Story. Yes. Well, to have that put into you and you're there with two left feet... It, it was quite a, it was quite a sort of test for that for that person and and give me help to get me there. But we did the test and I got the role. 
I got the role out of out of oh, I can't believe, but I got the role, and went and worked with Gene Kelly and Barbara and Streisand and Walter Matthau and Michael Kidd, who did the choreography, who was in uh, Seven Brides of Seven Brothers. So the energy on that set. I was over there for about six months with a long rehearsal period, about three months. So twelve weeks doing. I did about three or four numbers, so that's a lot of rehearsal. I'd never known a work routine like it, and that where is where my discipline started. That's where it really began, and I became, I'm proud to say, a, a good friend of Gene Kelly and his family. And he would come up to the house on a Sunday with an idea that he had for Monday morning. I mean, this man was unreal. Amazing. Yep. It, it was amazing, and he was my greatest mentor, without a shadow of a doubt wow. in my career, and I love the man to bits to this day. At this point, I reflected that despite Michael's growing reputation as a stage actor, he was still known in Britain for the BBC TV show Some Mothers Do Have Them. Incredibly, that show drew in audiences of 25 million, unheard of in current times. But it was Michael's role in The Phantom of the Opera where he became an international star and where we saw a completely different side to his acting talents. I think when, when, when Phantom arrived, it was, I was still doing Barnum, but I, I was going to a, a singing teacher so develop, to develop my voice and, and keep, not purposely developing it, I just wanted to develop sustainability to do eight shows a week without harming. So I used to go and sing every week something classical and one week I went along and Andrew Lloyd Webber arrived with Sarah Brightman early and they went downstairs in the kitchen and waited underneath the studio. And uh, at the end of my lesson, I went. I was singing Cara Selve and at the end of the lesson... Andrew apparently came up and said, who, 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 who was that? And, and, and Ian said, oh, I'm so sorry, Ian. He said, did he disturb you? He's still learning it, but he's doing so well. I'm so proud of him. And he said, who, who was it? So he said, it was Michael Crawford. Um, I do a part, no, no. I think we may have found our phantom. And, and that was... How amazing. A, a, a unbelievable. Circumstantial. Almost. Yes. And he'd seen, I think, everyone in London apart from the stage doorkeeper. So it was, it, it was <laughs> circumstantial to say I must have had an angel on my shoulder that day. So how did, how did you approach that, that character? I went along and met Andrew and, and he, he played... They'd already recorded the, the actual song of the Phantom of the Opera is there. They'd already recorded that, so it was a big, big sound. And they called, I think it was the overture, is what they were doing. And the hair stood up on the back of my neck as I listened to it. And I had, I remember I had my head down, sort of looking at my knees, sitting, and my, my, he my head, my eyes closed, just concentrating. The hair went up on the back of my head and I, and I clenched my fists 
and I held myself to listen to it. My head came up and one side of my shoulder went up and I felt the music. I felt the music. I can't describe that. I can't explain that. I just, that is what happened to me. I just felt that I connected with it somehow. He then played me music of the night and it was just beautiful. It was just beautiful. And I, I went away and I practiced it day and night. And the hardest part I was finding was, uh, close your eyes, let your spirit start to soar. Just to do that one note, that one high note going into the soft head. And that was the hardest part without sounding as though you're going start to soar. <laughs> you mustn't have sounds like that. It's got to be something very smooth. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to be hypnotic. I didn't. And he let me, Andrew actually let me do this. He, he let me sing his, and, and it's his music, Mark, you know, he wrote this. Yes. So I could have started slowly, gently, sing it as a tenor, if that's what I was doing then. Um, and, and he didn't. He let me, this man who'd never been loved, he'd never been held. He'd never known what love is. When he had started to fixate on this girl, slowly, gently, he let me do that. Mm. And I'd always loved listening. One of my favorite instruments is the saxophone. Mm. And I wanted to sound like Stan Getz. <laughs> uh, this, I mean, this may sound so absurd to people but I, I uh, these are the pictures I had in my head I wanted the breath to be heard I remember Peggy Lee Julie London these singers used to sing with so much breath well you can't do long phrases letting that much breath out it's very hard so the singing lessons I had expanded my lungs and my chest I'd always been skinny as a rake by practicing all these long phrases, I put on four inches on really? my chest. Yeah, at four inches. No idea that was even possible. Well, look at the size of my ribcage. I'm now the shape of a chicken. <laughs> so I, I, if I lie on the kitchen table at Christmas, I'm, I've, I'm, You're I'm, done, I'm for. done for. <laughs> <laughs> my other observation was that you also used your physicality to really bring that character to life didn't you well there was nothing there was nothing to show you had half a face you had your hands and your body and with the help of the late dear and beautiful Gillian Lynn she gave me and worked with me to make my body larger than I I am to move with with some a degree of grace to use to make me aware of right down to the end, to end of my fingertips and go into the ground to move like a, a cat I wanted to move again slowly and to make it as hypnotic as one could making that movement towards someone romantic and, and, and make it a dream and one more thing about the creation of the character the depth that you go into to to seek out this this loveless person that had no love and was given nothing 
you can sympathize with him. The audience can sympathize and care for him. To me, I had to find this night. There was this little boy that when we were in Barnum, we used to go to hospital visits every week because we were all dressed, keep our costume, go out as a clown or whatever and do tricks in the wards, in the children's wards. Coming out afterwards, walking downstairs, underneath the stairs was a bed and there was this little boy in it sitting with his mother. He was deformed, badly deformed. And this little boy... We sat down and did some tricks and he just stared at us and you wondered what was behind those little eyes and never forgot that little little boy. And to me, I took him and based Eric, the name of the phantom, I based him on this little boy. And so I could find the emotion every single night. By the end, this dream was over, the girl was over and... And I could find that every night because mm. of this little boy. Mm. Amazing. So all those things go together, the energy that's given to you by what you've learned from mm. people mm. like Gene Kelly, Gillian mm. Lynn, people like that, who, if we're open to it, we can learn and learn and learn. Michael went on to perform Phantom 1,300 times over two and a half years. In the original review in the New York Times, after opening on Broadway, Frank Rich described Michael's performance as mesmerising. Phantom went on to be an enormous hit. So, as we've talked about, the emotional depth and, and physicality in characters was very much part of how you approached your acting and, and singing career. And then... Later on in life, things went a bit amiss for you, didn't they? Yes, I was doing a a musical again for Andrew Lloyd Webber, which was uh, The Woman in White. And it was a difficult uh, show to do. I played Count Fosco, this Italian doctor. My picture of him in the book was this enormous man. They had this suit made for me, I was measured for which made me quite massive, and then prosthetics all over my face and my head that built out my chin to noise. It was so realistic. I mean, I had people coming in from America who come and say, and and they said, oh, my God, he's put on so much weight. They couldn't believe that it was me, that that was someone I'd put on this weight. And they were telling people in the interval, who then came around and told me what they'd said. It was very realistic. It was great makeup great costume but it took its toll after a a short while I'd lost so much water that I'd done quite a bit of doubt I I can't think of the technical term but my nutrients had gone I I I became ill anyway and we didn't know what it was but I I was it was like having the flu but without the body aching so I went and saw the doctors. They said, uh, oh, you'll be all right, but just make sure you take plenty of fluids during the day and you'll be fine and get the nutrients back in you. Two weeks later, I still was not well and didn't have any strength. Then felt a little better and I would get up in the morning and by midday I felt I can call the theatre and say, I'll be in tonight, I can come back. And suddenly I couldn't. I would 
have this tiredness come over, this fatigue come over me, and I'd have to go and lie down, and I would be there for the rest of the day. And I was gone. I had no strength. One can almost feel it as, as one talks about it. It, it. It's as though you can bring it back by... You take deeper breaths. I'm taking deeper breaths now because it, the, the memory of it is it's inexplicable. Then they came up with the idea. My doctor, in the end, said this could be ME. It's estimated that 250,000 people in the UK and around 17 million people worldwide suffer from ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. There was a lot of pressure about not being in the show and, and letting people down. So I, it's not something I was used to or had ever had happened to me before. No. So I was devastated at that. This is someone who was never off, never no. did, never missed no. a show, couldn't do this. No. And yet then that happens to you. I went to New Zealand and I, I got a house there and I spent a year recovering. And I think I was planting trees, little fruit trees, and, and I was building a garden, and I was reading, I was swimming, I was doing something that didn't have the eight shows a week syndrome, where I was used to the military precision and the discipline in my life, and all the worries that come with it. There's great success comes with it, but there's also tremendous pressure, mm. which goes with the job. I'm not moaning about that. I did, I'd done it for years, so it's, it's, it's something I loved and still love now. This was like rebooting your computer, and everything starts up again, but it's slowly, and there aren't people on the phone saying, well, how are you now? Are you feeling, are you, can you come in now? Well, can you get in tomorrow afternoon? Well, can you do that? Can you do that? And that, that had all, there was nobody there. Mm. I was just mm. there with my partner and she and I just started again. Started again, yeah. Went back to basics, I guess. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's as simplistically as I could put it. And slowly it worked and I began to have energy where I would be able to walk and lens, spend the entire day and, and then watch some television and, and then have an early night and, and got into very early mornings getting up and life began again. I mean, in, in a sense, you were, you were taking the pressure off yourself in, in a way, weren't you? Because yes. I, I'm, you were obviously a very professional. You put a huge amount into your acting and your performances um, you know, you, you, of your own description, you're a, you're a perfectionist in that, in that regard. You have got to reboot your life. And I think the other thing is that it's not about getting back to where you were before. No. Because the reason you got in that place is something to do with yes. where you were before. Yeah. So I think that that is the hardest thing um, for anybody to, to comprehend. But I think, you know, giving an optimistic message for anybody who, who is unlucky enough to have the condition or someone who knows the condition is it really is taking those small steps to reboot yourself. Great words you use. I have a greater appreciation, as most people do, I talk to, mm. of life. Yes. And you respect things 
yes. a lot more. You have a, a, a lot, a, a, an awareness of the world around you yes. instead of being blinkered about. As as we have to, we have to earn a living, mm. pay our rent, we mm. have to pay our mortgage, we mm. have to feed our children, mm. we have to be a husband, be mm. a partner, mm. be strong. Mm. I met you for the first time, brought to my home by your sister, who was my vocal therapist. And she, when you just walked out the door, she put her arms around me, she says, I have my brother back. Yeah. That's, and it was, was so, so nice. moving. Yeah. It was so moving yes. that she'd lost her brother. Yeah. It's like I, I would imagine, like a mental illness yes. that you have, and people think you're 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 someone else. Yes. Mm. Mm. Now I've reached a, a sort of ripe old age. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not worrying about what job I do next, and I and I have far more time to think about much more important things, yeah. really, about humanity. Yes. Michael returned to the stage in The Wizard of Oz, and a number of years later, in the stage performance of The Go-Between, which was widely acclaimed. Robert Diamond wrote, by the show's end and a thunderous standing ovation, I can report that five-plus decades into his career, not only has Michael Crawford not lost a step vocally or in his ability to mine a character, but he's drawing on the wealth of expertise and stagecraft to create another powerful and unique creation. The performance was also remarkable for its feat of endurance because Michael was on stage for nearly three hours, a testament to his stamina and recovery from the ME. Happily for both of us, we, we you know we we came through it. Yeah. Um, and but in your case, you obviously got back onto the stage and and started back where you began in many ways. Yes, I I'm, I really had much more pleasure in the things that I did. I did something like the Wizard of Oz, and I had a lot more fun doing that than I had before, where it had been so intense. But this was fun. I mm. was playing some, you know, crazy wizard, and and it was light-hearted, and and it was was a lot easier. I mean, I must say, that doing the go-between wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't an easy task. I mean, that was a very intense role, but I loved it. I loved it. I had my love and energy back for my work. Mm. I'm in that transitional period because I'm fighting it. I'm fighting being, I can't even say the age I am, but I have to, I have to fight that because I don't feel it. I want to be, I want to stay at 50. And, and that, you want to do that trapeze act again that you did in Oh, yes. In I mean, we did Sport Aid two years ago. Yes. And I was on roller skates yes. still hanging that on the back amazing. of a bus. So my proudest thing was that I didn't fall over once. So yeah. that was when we finished. Fantastic. I went to the uh, the stunt boys, and, and that we were all sort of high fiving each other because they'd done, done their it, job yeah. and I'd done my job. Yes. What gives you most joy in life now? I suppose, but simplistically, life itself. By I'll sit and look at the the river and the people having fun. I love watching. There's a there's a playground there where you can always hear in the distance children, children. playing. Yes, in the in, and and my charity's always been for children that you look after kids who have less of a chance in their childhood than I had. I hope you enjoyed this special episode. If you did, please rate and review 
and tell your friends. Turning the Tables will be back in the new year with more guests that have turned adversity into advantage. I look forward to seeing you again. Until then, go safely.